back to Peace in Their Time, episode 37, The Other Guys. Okay, time for something a smidge different than usual. At this point, we've pretty well wrapped up the overview history of the main European players in the first part of our narrative, excepting the Soviet Union, which I'll be covering down the road. But that does leave a huge patchwork of nations, large and small, spanning the length of Central Europe. Just a terminology aside, the definition of Central Europe I'll be using is more or less anything east of Germany and Italy, but not in the Soviet Union. I'm not looking to argue that should be the set-in-stone official grouping, just how I'll be applying the term here. And I think it's an apt enough regional name, because a key source of the inhabitants' misery is going to be the fact they found themselves wedged dead center between the fascist and communist blocs. And as a result, they had to suffer the ambitions and depredations of their much larger neighbors. This will be the start of a seven-episode series explaining the background of these countries as it applies to the interwar era and how they play into our narrative. These nations are, by and large, either brand new ones created from the collapse of the great European empires during World War I, or countries that enlarge themselves at the expense of those same fallen empires. The early part of the 20s is especially important, as in many cases, the conflicts of World War I extended into the first part of the decade, and the effects of the Russian Revolution was also felt all across this stretch of Europe. Many of the new states were more united by dreams of nationalism rather than proven state institutions, and the experience of many peoples in this era wound up being a mixed one. And by mixed, I mean embittering and disheartening. Even the victorious nations that had secured their national ambitions as far as territory went later struggled to find stability going into the future. Meanwhile, for many, this era was a disaster, as their nations were either reduced or their national aspirations were frustrated. The unresolved disputes of the peoples of Central Europe would linger on through the years and would help play a key role in the expansion of the future conflict. It's not a coincidence that many of the most miserable and dangerous places to be in Europe during World War II were in this area. Knowing just how so many grudges got started is essential to understanding how all these countries got sucked into a much bigger mess that wasn't originally of their making. So let's get started on an overview of this grab bag of nations and the grievances that helped to stabilize peace in the region. The first I'm going to cover is also the most geographically isolated, Finland. And it's due to this isolation that Finland's big issue in these years will be the ever-present bear of a nation next door, the Soviet Union. Finland itself only just became independent in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. For centuries, it had been a possession of Sweden, and then from 1809 was taken by the Russian Empire. It was organized into the Grand Duchy of Finland, which initially was autonomous and kept its own laws and customs. The years of Russian rule leading into the 1900s, though, saw that autonomy be eroded, much to the outrage of the Finns. While the Finnish population was too small to properly resist this erosion, by the waning days of World War I, the Tsar's state was falling apart, and local officials took the opportunity to start taking back their lost autonomy. On December 4, 1917, Finnish officials formally declared their independence. At that exact moment, Lenin was desperately trying to arrange a peace deal with the Germans, and had also made a general offer of self-determination to the various peoples of the Tsarist Empire. 
which was mostly a tactic to secure their goodwill, as his government wasn't in any shape to try governing them. But it meant that the Bolshevik government was quick to recognize the Finns. Small problem, though. The Finns themselves were badly divided between their leftist and conservative factions. On January 27, 1918, the left-wing faction seized power in Helsinki and southern Finland with the backing of the Bolshevik government in Petrograd. All of a sudden, there was a civil war. History records the two sides as the Reds on the left-wing side and the Whites as the conservative side, the same as in the Russian civil war that was developing at the same time. However, the Reds in this case quickly became dominated by moderate social democrats, and not the Marxists who had staged the initial uprising. And while the Bolsheviks sent some arms and volunteers, the overwhelming vast majority of the Red troops would be native Finns. On the other hand, in the center and north of the country were the Whites. Led by the former Tsarist officer, General Karl Mannerheim, whom you might recognize as a wartime leader of Finland in World War II, they immediately called on the support of the German army in the east to put down the uprising in the south. Wanting to contain the potential spread of Bolshevism now that it had served its purpose in getting Russia out of the war, the Germans would deploy 14,000 troops in order to secure Finland for their own sphere of influence. The Finnish Red Army attempted an attack into the central areas of the country, but their lack of high-level leadership meant that coordination was poor, and the Whites repulsed their attacks. This opened the door for Mannerheim to launch a counterattack, and resulted in the largest set-piece battle of the war, around the industrial city of Tampere. Mannerheim's troops were forced to fight house-to-house -house against the Reds between March 15th and April 6th, 1918, but backed by artillery managed to break their resistance. A thousand Red prisoners were gathered up and shot afterwards, with thousands more taken to prisoner camps where many died of starvation and disease. On April 3rd, 1918, the first German troops started to arrive, and by the 13th had taken Helsinki and much of the southern coastal areas. At this point, Red resistance started to collapse, and by mid-May, the Whites were in full control of the country, and had established the boundaries of their nation to match the old Grand Duchy, which notably included the Karelian Isthmus, a narrow strip of land between the Baltic Sea and Lake Ladoga, just a short distance north of the city of Petrograd, later Leningrad. The Bolsheviks had mostly stayed out of the conflict once the Germans had shown up, and they had little capability to counterattack them and the White Finns, and so were forced to accept the boundary. The small piece of real estate would be an ongoing concern of the Soviets, and they looked forward to the day when they could push the Finns away from the doorstep of one of their core cities. The Whites, after their victory, started a purge of the Reds, killing eventually 10,000 people. Overall, 36,000 people died in the Civil War, which, given the nation's population of only 3 million, made it a relatively brutal conflict. The Finns initially intended to import a German prince to be their king, but their defeat in World War I left the Finns suddenly without their partner. Finland opted to follow the example of victorious Entente and established a republic. This is going to be an ongoing thing during these years, as many of the new states sought to emulate the successes of the Entente by adopting similar governments. The main difference with the Finns was that this actually worked out for them, although part of that was because they enjoyed a political consensus as a result of potential opposition groups being brutalized after the Civil War.
1920, they also secured the Treaty of Tartu, which secured peace and normal relations between themselves and the Soviet Union. This was important, as there were still ethnic Finns spread across the far north of Russia, which some saw as a pretext for further expansion east. The intense nationalists among the Whites had their dream of an enlarged Finland stretching all the way to the White Sea dashed, as the government renounced further territorial claims on Soviet land. There would still be some efforts to support ethnic Finns on the Soviet side of the border in their attempts at independence, but the national government eventually managed to stifle that support for the sake of good relations. The nation withdrew into a quiet existence in the world's far north, although the Soviets kept a watchful eye on their neighbors at all times. Further south of Finland was the trio of Baltic states that so commonly get lumped together, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. All three nations were born out of the collapse of first Russia and then Germany. The Germans had intended the region to become a large vassal state, but their defeat opened the way for Entente influence into the region, and the three states that eventually formed each strove to establish themselves as liberal democracies on the Western model. All three, though, would face their share of challenges, not just from the Soviets to the East, but internally as well. The British took the early initiative in providing aid, and in spring 1919, the Royal Navy was deployed in the Baltic. Armaments and advisors flowed in to help the tiny nations set up national armies capable of repelling both the Bolsheviks and German remnants still in their countries. In Estonia, this was accomplished in short order, as first a Bolshevik attack was repulsed in January 1919, and a later German Free Corps detachment was repelled in June. Yes, you heard me correctly. The Free Corps paramilitaries also had operations in the Baltic, as the German government wanted to keep the possibility of influence in the region open, and there were still German troops on the ground left over from World War I. They would be especially active in Latvia, but more on that in a minute. The initial victory over the Red Army established Estonia as a shelter for the White Russian faction in the Russian Civil War, which almost got the Estonians into some very real trouble. The White troops tried to advance on Petrograd from Estonian territory, but were trounced in the attempt, and the Red Army invaded Estonia again at the end of 1919. Luckily for the Estonians, the second attempt went as well as the first, which is to say, not very. This resulted in Estonia and the Bolsheviks making up with the Treaty of Tartu, the same one I just mentioned that the Finns were party to as well. A stable peace eluded Estonia, though, even as the fighting finally ended. The nation suffered badly from internal unrest after its initial burst of enthusiasm for parliamentary democracy. In my episodes on the great powers of Europe, I brought the pattern of leadership turnover that was a hallmark of political instability, and this also occurred in states as tiny as the ones in the Baltic. The average lifespan of a government in Estonia was under nine months, and it was undermined by the growing militaristic far right. Fearing the Soviets and suffering from the Great Depression, fascist groups threatened to take over in 1934, and the prime minister at the time, Konstantin Patz, assumed emergency powers under the premise of protecting democracy. He banned the fascists, but then turned around and dissolved the parliament, establishing himself as dictator. It ultimately did the nation little good, as while stability was restored, Estonia was terribly isolated off in its own little corner of Europe, its only ally, by treaty, the almost as small Latvia. 
Speaking of which, Latvia had perhaps an even more painful birth, as it was the epicenter of German Free Corps activity in the region. Latvia notably played host to a large German minority, and the military saw it as a distant enough locale that they could operate with a free hand while the Entente put together peace terms at Versailles. The bad news for the Germans was that the Entente were not interested in them dominating the region. The good news, though, was that the British weren't opposed to the Free Corps units in the area fighting the Bolsheviks, and the commander of the local British naval squadron gave his tacit approval for their presence. Initially, that is. The German forces were divided into two groups, the purely German Iron Division and the Baltic Landswehr, which was supposed to be the core of the Latvian army. However, it was under German leadership who muscled out the Latvian officers and assumed full control. This takeover was handled by Captain Pabst, who you might remember from the German episodes as the guy who oversaw the murders of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, as well as one of the plotters in the future Kapusch. This guy really, really got around. By April 1919, most of the Bolsheviks had been driven from Latvia, and this is about when the Free Corps mentality really kicked in. Both the Iron Division and the Baltic Landswehr had been set up as normal military units, but the German soldiers had by this time adopted a totally mercenary attitude, and feeling like the German government was too far away to do anything, much less the Entente, decided to go into business for themselves. The Latvian government picked up on the danger, but only went so far as arresting a single German officer. This was a bad move, because it only set off the others, and on April 16th, the Free Corps units overthrew the Latvian government, and their commander, General Rudiger von Goltz, assumed control of the country. This might seem like a big step for foreign troops with no state backing, as, at this point, the Weimar government had turned their back on them, but Goltz was counting on the major Latvian landholders to support him. So far, they had been the biggest allies of the Germans in Latvia, who they saw as the only defense against the Red Army and also many were ethnically German themselves. However, the daring spirit of the Free Corps, which had brought them success to this point, was coupled with a bloodthirstiness that you might remember from the Germany episodes. As the Free Corps seized Latvia, they started murdering thousands who resisted or were suspected of opposing them. Latvian support dwindled, but Goltz wasn't able to read the room. He thought his position was secure and launched that invasion of Estonia I mentioned, which was immediately repulsed in June. This broke the illusion of German power, and was also the moment when the British intervened. Backed by the guns of the Royal Navy, they were able to reinstall the Latvian government in much of the nation, and took control of the Baltic landswehr and put it back in the hands of the Latvians. The remaining Free Corps troops agreed towards the end of August 1919 to return to Germany, but went back on the deal and tried to storm Riga in October. This went terribly for them, as the Latvians had been organized and equipped by the British, and the Germans were fought to a standstill. Suffering from a bombardment coming from British ships, the Free Corps troopers broke and fled south, back towards East Prussia. They were harried the whole way, and were only saved by another militia marching north from Germany, linking up with them. Many of these veterans were embittered the German government hadn't come to help them, and they in turn provided the most motivated troopers that took part in the Kapush. 
With the dreams of a German network of client states in the region dashed, Latvia could finally set about establishing itself. The last of the Red Army troops were ejected at the start of 1920, and like their neighbors, they established a liberal democracy. Unfortunately, they enjoyed about the same level of success as their neighbors. Politics were polarized and the government was ineffectual. The political woes were mirrored in the nation's economic performance as well, leaving the populace increasingly disenchanted with their state. Finally, in 1934, Carlos Ulbanis, the same national leader who had been saved by the British back in 1919, staged a coup and assumed dictatorial powers modeled after Mussolini. He recognized the dangerous position the country was in, so close to the Soviets and the Germans. However, his attempts at constructing a defense community among nations in the Baltic and further south came to nothing, and Latvia was precariously situated close to both Germany and the Soviets with no major friend for protection. Part of the reason why collective Baltic security never really took off as an idea was because of issues in the last of the Baltic states, Lithuania which had an important difference compared to its two northerly counterparts. Unlike the others, Lithuania had a long-running border dispute with one of its new neighbors, something that's going to be happening again and again. And it's going to be over a very modest strip of land, which is also something that we're going to be seeing again and again. The nature of the dispute was over the city of Vilnius and its surrounding area. Vilnius is important, as it was in the time before Russian rule, the capital of Lithuania. As of 1919, though, as was the case all over the East, Red Army was marching westwards, trying to push the revolution into the heart of Europe. The Lithuanians were not in a position to resist the Soviet onslaught, and it was only due to the victories of its southern neighbor, Poland, against the Reds, that they were able to re-establish their nation. That is, except for Vilnius as Poland, in the process of driving the Bolsheviks out, took that city for themselves, over the protests from Lithuania. There is a very long history between the Lithuanians and Poles, despite all their linguistic and cultural differences. Once upon a time, they were unified in a massive commonwealth that stretched across Central and Eastern Europe, and their mutual reestablishment as nations raised the question if they would give it another go together. But the land disputes precluded any potential for a reconciliation between the two, and they remained bitter adversaries through to the start of World War II. The issue also meant that any attempt at creating some kind of security arrangement in the Baltic states against the Soviets was predicated on the two nations bearing the hatchet, which simply was not going to happen. This left the whole greater region isolated and disunited from each other. Lithuania consoled itself by occupying the Klaipeda region, or as it was more commonly known at the time, the Memeland, a small strip of land centered around the port city of Memel on the Baltic. This happened in 1923, while Germany was distracted by the French occupation of the Ruhr. The area had been under French administration, pending them figuring out which local ethnic group had the better claim to it. The French, not being too happy with the Germans at the time, shrugged and considered the matter resolved to their satisfaction after the Lithuanian takeover. I questioned the wisdom of snatching up a disputed territory from a much larger neighbor, but getting a proper Baltic port was considered worth it, I guess. It did, however, put Lithuania squarely on the German enemies list, which was bad, 
because they were also on the same list for the Soviets and the Poles. Once established, Lithuania also enjoyed a short-lived democracy, which was duly overthrown by a nationalist dictatorship in 1926. This one had the added infamy of launching pogroms against its Jewish minority, a sign of things to come in the not-too-distant future, while the Polish minority was also oppressed. But like their neighbors, the dictatorship did not bring any new security. The intractable conflicts with its neighbors merely served to leave Lithuania alone among the giants that surrounded it. Which really is kind of the story of the Baltic states in a nutshell. Because the Soviets were considered such an existential threat, the Baltic nations couldn't expect help in developing their new national institutions coming from that direction. And since Lithuania and Poland had a land dispute, they couldn't really make connections further south. And to the west, across the sea, was a destabilized Germany. Uh, there really wasn't anyone around to provide assistance in case their attempts at nation-building stalled. And one by one, they fell into authoritarianism. It certainly didn't help that all three had suffered greatly during World War I, with most of the industries in the region being packed up and shipped out. The intractable political conflicts between the leftists and nationalists of each country meant that they could never follow a coherent plan to build themselves back up economically from that very low starting point. Too small to properly chart their own courses in the world, they were prisoners to circumstance and eventually bargaining chips to their bigger neighbors. Turning away from the Baltic, a pleasant contrast to all this completely negative history was the case of Czechoslovakia. And you might have noticed I skipped somebody on the map, but don't worry. Poland gets its own episode next week. Out of all the countries born out of the collapse of the empires, they were absolutely the success story of the region. Now, they did have a lot of advantages that the other countries simply didn't, though. The most noticeable compared to, say, Poland was that their country hadn't been a battlefield, so no full-scale rebuilding efforts were needed. The other was that the Czech part of the country had been one of the big industrial centers of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Notable among Czech industries were the Skoda Works in the western part of the country, an enormous industrial complex that served as the premier weapons manufacturer of the old empire. It continued in the role under the new Czech state, and it diversified into a wide range of consumer goods. Unique among Central European states, the Czechs were able to produce the newer motorized and mechanized products that were at the vanguard of technological development in the 20s which, yes, also helped make it a tempting target down the road. And what further made it a future tempting target was that the new state, like so many of its neighbors, had to operate with sizable minorities in its borders. In fact, Czechoslovakia had to operate as an uneasy partnership with minorities under the dominant two ethnic groups. Before World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire operated as a dual monarchy, divided between the two namesakes. The Czech region of Bohemia fell under Austrian governance, the Slovakian portion fell under the Hungarian half. Now, the divisions between the two parts were not so much like two different nations entirely, but each had really followed different paths up to that point. The Czech part was industrialized, urbanized, and it was connected far more with Western Europe than the rest of the region was. It had a vibrant nationalist movement, and ready leaders on hand to govern the new nation once the Habsburg Empire collapsed. In fact, they even had an army, as captured Czech troops from the Eastern Front were organized into new units intended to fight on the Entente side 
under the leadership of those same nationalist leaders. Some troops were shipped west, although the most famous example was the Czech Legion stationed in Russia. That unit of some 60,000 troops wound up fighting in central Russia against the Bolsheviks, much to the delight of their Entente sponsors. Given that they couldn't hold out forever there, and couldn't fight westwards, they instead made an epic trek eastward across the Ural Mountains in Siberia over the course of three years, where they were shipped back to Europe via the port of Vladivostok. The exploits of that unit, and the Czech troops deployed to the Western Front, did much to establish the new government's legitimacy, as they were a proven partner for the Entente. It also meant that the Czech nationalists organizing all this cooperation were going to be calling the shots in the new country. The Slovakians, on the other hand, were not so fortunate. It's a mountainous country, dominated by the northern half of the Carpathian Mountains, and historically was a component of the old Kingdom of Hungary. It was rural in character, and its economic links stretched southwards towards Budapest, rather than the new capital of Prague. The Entente had determined that Slovakia was too weak to stand by itself as an independent nation, which, not coincidentally, was exactly what the Czech leaders at Versailles were insisting. And so, the Slovakians got linked up with the Czechs. The Slovaks were not automatically against the Union, but had hoped for a federal system where their section of the country would manage most of its own affairs. This hope was almost immediately dashed, though, as the Czechs had both the demographic and economic advantage and pushed for a more centralized state, with them in the dominant position. This left the Slovaks painfully aware of how they would be junior partners in the new union. From the start, there were misgivings, but there wasn't much to be done about it just yet. The wishes of the Paris Peace Conference were for the time respected. But even the divisions between the Czechs and Slovaks did not even cover the bigger divisions presented by the other minorities. The most important were the Sudeten Germans, which occupied a winding strip of U-shaped land running along the whole border with Austria and Germany. Upon the fall of the Habsburg Empire, the new nation of Austria had tried to assert some claim to these German regions, which, after all, there was the whole self-determination thing being discussed at the time, and they were Germans who had been ruled from Vienna. However, these lands also accounted for most of the mineral resources of the nascent Czech state, and the Czech representatives in Paris absolutely could not let this region slip away. And it would have looked ridiculous on a map, as it was a thin strip of land running three-quarters of a ring around the Czech frontiers. So the Entente, and especially the French, opted to reinforce the Czechs at the expense of the Germans, and gave the land over to the new state. This left a distinct German minority living in the borderlands, and while they were not terribly restive during the 1920s, they were a potential source of grievance that could, and would, be exploited. The other notable group was over in southern Slovakia. The nation had been part of Hungary, so the lowlands below the Carpathians were extensively settled by Hungarians. In the interest of further reinforcing the new state, this strip of land was also assigned to Czechoslovakia. The Hungarians also lost the far eastern end of their country to Czechoslovakia, which was inhabited by a half million Ukrainians. The local Ukrainians didn't identify with either the Czechs or Slovaks, but when presented with the non-choice of fellow Slavs and Hungarians, were more comfortable with the former. The Czechs also scored a small speck of land in a dispute with the Poles as well. 
This left three sizable neighbors all staring at Czechoslovakia with potential claims, which is going to lead to some of the defining crises in the year leading up to World War II. That, though, would only become a problem years later, and in a vastly changed world. Despite the ethnic divisions, Czechoslovakia was an internally peaceful country during the 20s. It grew its export economy and continued to be the economic success story of Central Europe. By and large, it had a good education system and was the most politically open of the newer states. As I mentioned earlier, this was the big exception where democracy successfully took root. All the ethnic groups were politically enfranchised and their cultures guaranteed protection. And all but the Hungarians took part in parliamentary politics, with the Hungarian political groups abstaining in protest. And they were free to protest. And it was also a nation where social reforms were not brutally repressed. All through the early 20s, there were massive worker strikes demanding better conditions. And instead of panicking and sending in the army, those demands were met. Basics like the eight-hour workday and pensions were instituted and labor unions were respected. One of the reasons why the Czechs are getting a partial episode instead of a full one is because they were actually kind of fine. Abroad, too, Czechoslovakia did well for itself. Already having secured friendly relations with the Entente during World War I, the Czech government reached out to its local neighbors as well. For the Czechs, the biggest immediate problem internationally was down south with Hungary. The Hungarians wanted as much land back as they could, but luckily for the Czechs, that was a similar story with the rest of Hungary's neighbors. The nations of Yugoslavia and Romania had also both taken large parts of the Hungarian kingdom and were also wary of any revanchism. So, they got together and formed what was termed the Little Entente in 1921. That alliance would prove to be a cornerstone for peace in south-central Europe during these years. The Czechs elected to keep a more distant relationship with France as well, not wanting to become a proxy for them in the region, and especially after the Locarno Treaties made a seemingly permanent settlement in the west, but left Czechoslovakia's borders open to revising down the road. Understanding the danger they were in, Czechoslovakia maintained probably the best-equipped army in Central Europe, thanks in large part to the old weapons industries continuing to hum along just fine in the new country. Out of all the nations I'm describing in this series, it's the Czechoslovakians that were best positioned for future prosperity. If Central Europe in this era was defined by lowered expectations and national crisis, here was the one example where the Entente's hopes for the region were actually realized. Next week, though, we'll be turning to a much more ambiguous example of success, Poland. That nation did an impressive job of willing itself into existence and immediately becoming a regional power, but would fall prey to many of the problems that should now be familiar to us. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.